Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks Thanks be to to God, who gives gives us victory, the victory, the victory, through our Lord Jesus Christ. And welcome back into the Living Victory Podcast. My name is Christian Conway. As always, I'm joined by Max Keen and Jonathan Kraus. How are we doing this week? We're surviving. First week of school. Yeah, I know you guys both moved into your your dorm and your apartment, respectively. So, I how how did, how did those transitions go these over this past week? Well, I mean, for me, I live with nine or 11 other people when I'm not at school. So really, it's not that much of a transition going from a lot of people to a lot of people. And my room back home basically just feels like a dorm room. So it's not that much of a transition for me. (laughs) (laughs) Can't say the same for me. It's pretty big transition. The biggest thing you could probably hear is uh, the difference in my sound quality. So uh, the room that I recorded at home obviously has carpet and like desks around and stuff. So it it has sound cancellation. Um, The room I'm in now has hardwood, like hard flooring with very um, just kind of a different feel to the room and a very echoey. So sorry about my mic. I'm actually currently holding a towel over my mic to dampen the sound a little bit until we figure out a better option. So that's just kind of a funny thing. But yeah, so I'm, I'm also moved in now. I live with uh, three other guys at the moment. Um, so yeah, we're figuring it out. I haven't been here long, so I don't know. Uh, can, couldn't tell you too much about it, but it's definitely going to be an interesting experience. Yeah, lots of changes going on this time of year, beginning of school. Um, actually, we just dropped our, our new merchandise line for the podcast this week, so that was that was really exciting. Woo! We've <laughs> we've been yes. working with this this company, uh, Victorious Co. Apparel on, on Instagram, and we've been working on this 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 for months. Um, we've been working on the design, what we wanted the shirts to look like, and we just it like we wanted to make sure that we didn't just release something just to release something. We wanted to make sure that we had the design that we that we were proud of, um, something that we could look at. You could look at the T-shirt and see our podcast and, you know, the spirit and the attitude and the the personality of our podcast through the shirt. And I had my my sister is is big into design uh, drawing and she actually has her own company for design. And so we I had her help us uh, collaborate with us on designing the shirts. And it turned out really, really good. So you can visit our Instagram uh, to get those shirts. You can message us if you have trouble finding it. Uh, it's really, really cool. I'll put the uh, I'll put the link to get the shirts in the show notes to this episode, uh, so you guys can check it out. It it's it's really cool. I'm really glad with how they turned out. We have shirts, we have hoodies, we have mugs, we have masks for you know coronavirus season. It'd be a cool a cool little uh, thing to have on your mask to to represent a gospel sharing podcast with your mask. Um, we also have a, a tank top and then there's women's shirts as well. There's there's unisex shirts and there's women's shirts. And so we have a, a wide variety of things to choose from for merch for the podcast. And I'm really, really glad with how it turned out. Yeah, just kind of a funny story along that. So a little background of a little bit more of who I am is for since I can remember, I've collected um, mugs and I'm at the point where I'm probably at like 50 or 60 of them. And my dad just keeps telling me, you need to stop buying mugs. You need to stop buying mugs. You need to stop buying mugs. And I'm just like, no, I like collecting them. They're cool. You know, we can buy more cabinets, whatever, to hold them. And so um, when the merch came out, I texted my dad. I'm like, Living Victory is now on a mug. And he just sent a bunch of angry emojis. I'm like, oh, thanks for the support, dad. Love you too. <laughs> no, but he, he was excited, but he... We just have this joke that he hates how many mugs I have. Yeah, I know. I'm definitely going to pick up some of those t-shirts. They look quite awesome, I must say. I was super excited when it dropped. I was like, oh my goodness, it looks so good. Um, But coming into today's podcast, um, we're actually going to be starting a series on apologetics. Now, this is kind of something that we've been wanting to do for a while now because of well mainly first peter 315 always be prepared to give a reason for the hope that is in within you 
Um, and this has been something that was kind of become very important to us, especially over Mission Possible, which we've talked a lot about. But we learned so many um, ways to share our gospel and ways to reason with people um, on Mission Possible. And it was an amazing experience. And we all became pretty interested in um, sort of getting more theological with our answers and, and having, you know, apologetic ways to come at arguments. Um, well, not arguments. We don't like to call them arguments. So we know it's not our job to, to reason people to Christ, but it is always good to have a reason for the hope that is within you and a way to defend your faith. Um, and so we've been excited to get, we're going to do probably a couple of episode series on um, some really good apologetics that you guys could use in sharing your faith. Um, and we're going to start today with really the, like, why is the, the kind of the reason behind the existence of God? Like, why, why does God need to exist, um, essentially? And we're going to be talking about the moral law a little bit, and we'll get into that. Uh, but really, when we're talking about the gospel, we're talking about how uh, every person has sinned, right? Romans 3.23, for, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So we all know we know that every human being, because Adam sinned um, and sin is passed down generation to generation, that every person on earth has sin in them, that they are a sinful uh, being. They have a sin nature. And this sin nature obviously uh, separates us from God. We cannot be we no longer can be in a holy communion with God because of the sin in us. And in the Old Testament, the way that they uh sort of covered their sins was they would sacrifice animals, that they would impute their sins onto animals and then sacrifice the animals. But obviously that was temporary. They had to keep doing that. So God sent down his son, Jesus Christ, as a man. And that man lived a perfect life. He wasn't just a man. He was fully man. He was fully God. And he lived a perfect life. The only person that's ever lived a perfect life. Um, and then he died on the cross as our perfect sacrifice. Obviously, animals were not perfect. They were not a perfect, uh, they were a temporary sacrifice. But Jesus was a, what's the word opposite of temporary? Eternal. Permanent. Okay, that works. But Jesus was the eternal sacrifice. And his sacrifice is enough for all of us. And on the third day after he died on the cross, he was raised again from the dead. And he conquered sin and he conquers death. So that through our trust and faith in him and in his death and resurrection we can attain eternal life through his perfect sacrifice so that his righteousness is imputed to us now when we're talking about that gospel with other people usually the first thing that we always get hung up on before we even get to um, the life of jesus christ and his death and his burial and his resurrection before we can even get there we have to go through why people need a savior in the first place because a lot of people want to ignore this aspect of sin in their life. They honestly just think that they're a good person and that their good outweighs their bad. So therefore they don't need to worry about it. Like they don't have a need for a savior. And that's where this, this moral law really comes in. So that's where, that's kind of our starting point. We're starting at the very beginning. Why, like what, why does God need to exist? Like what is the evidence for God's existence um, through apologetic argument and a little bit of theological stuff? And because of that, what is in us that causes us to need a savior? So that's kind of our starting point for today for this series. And like Jonathan mentioned, we we are starting out this apologetic series. Uh, we're going to go into a lot of different apologetics questions, uh, questions that people have about the faith, questions that that people struggle with uh, with with their own faith. We're going through. We're going to answer these questions. We're going to look into science. We're going to look into um, objective reality. We're going to look into what the Bible says, and we're going to combine all these things to show why we as Christians believe what it is that we believe. And today we're going to start off with that core tenet of the faith, which really everything that we believe as Christians hinges on the idea that there is a God. And we're looking into this, this idea that there is a God, because that's one of the most con contested things about Christianity in this world, that uh, especially when you're doing apologetics, uh, sharing your, your faith and using apologetics um, in a, a setting with people who aren't necessarily all friendly to the idea that there's a God, that's the first question that they ask. They say, well, why should I believe any of this? I don't even believe that there's a God in the first place. And 
we're going to look into specifically two main arguments today for why we believe that there's a God and things that we we can look to objectively to see that God exists. And before we go into this, we are going to we're going to preface this by saying that it is impossible to 100% prove that God exists. There is always an element of faith when it comes to believing that God exists. The things that we're going to point you to today are things that we can look at in the world that show that it's extremely likely that God exists. And when we say that it's it's impossible to 100% prove that God exists, that isn't saying that Christianity is weaker than science. That isn't saying that that what we believe is weaker than than what a what an atheist believes or what somebody who somebody who prefers to look to science rather than Christianity. Um, for those who think that science and Christianity are diametrically opposed to one another, for somebody who thinks that science is more reliable than Christianity, because you can prove things in science, but you can't prove things in in uh, Christianity. Uh, we know that even in science, you can't one hundred percent prove thing prove something. There's always an element of faith. Uh, in any experimentation that you're doing in science, because uh, even even scientific laws, like you you start off with a hypothesis and then it gets tested and tested and tested through experimentation. Then it becomes a theory and then it gets tested and tested and tested. And over time, over decades of time being tested um, time and time again through experimentation, something can become a scientific law. But as we know, it only takes one experiment to prove a scientific law wrong. And so nothing, nothing even in science can ever be proven to be 100% true. Uh, we can only go based off of the evidence that we have, looking at all the evidence that we have collected so far and seeing what that evidence points us to. And we're going to do that same thing here today when we're looking at the arguments for God. We're going to look at the evidence that's presented before us, and we're going to see where that evidence points us. We're going to, we're going to show the evidence that we have and show why we believe that that evidence points us in the direction of a creator God who is personally involved in all of our lives. Um, and so today... We're going to start off by looking at the moral argument for God. And this moral argument is one of the most convincing in my mind, just because it's something that it's like ingrained in each one of our hearts. And it's something that we all know deep down inside. We all have morals and we all have universal morals. We know things that we believe to be right. We believe to be wrong. And there's not there's not something that we can point to within culture or within society or whatever it may be that proves that these morals are correct or any standard apart from God by which we can, we can say that this is right and this is wrong universally, 100%, no matter the case. And so we're going to look into this moral argument. We're going to look a little bit deeper um, into it and see why the existence of universal morals within our hearts is proof for the existence of God or helps us. It, it points us in the direction of the existence of a God. So looking at moral law, um, Really, what is it? Well, all of us, we have a set of morals, right? We have these ideas of, okay, this is right, this is wrong. Um, like, I think it was Christian who said it earlier, a lot of people think that they're a good person. Well, how do you know that? How do you know, like, between a good person and a bad person? Where where do we get these ideas from? Well, moral law, that is what we believe to be right and what we like how we know like oh murder is a bad thing stealing is a bad thing um, lying is a bad thing where do we get these ideas from well they have to come from somewhere right otherwise you know we could just go around and do whatever we want live in a way that you know if people would see you today they'd think you're crazy um so these ideas of moral law what they have to come from somewhere right well what about god see god a lot of things that people line up as good versus bad come from what god has said um i'm gonna read romans 2 verses 14 and 15 which say indeed when gentiles who do not have the law do by nature things required by the law they are a law for themselves even though they do not have the law they show that the requirements of the law are written on their hearts 
their consciences are also bearing witnesses, and their thoughts sometimes accusing them, at other times even defending themselves. And so even people that don't have a law, they have this idea, this sense of right and wrong. And ultimately that comes from God because it's been written on their hearts. God has placed an idea of right versus wrong in our hearts. Okay, so Max just introduced us to um, what the moral law is. And it's really, it's the simplest way to put it is it, the moral law is just a way that we have in ourselves that we believe we should act in a certain way, right? That we have this general idea of difference between right and wrong. Um, and there's generally two arguments that like atheists and scientific evolutionists come up with against this idea of moral law, that we, every person has this ability to generally see the difference between right and wrong and to understand a way that, that people in general should act, that people should act in a, in a good way, um, that they have this idea of good even in, in and of itself in their mind. Um, and those two arguments are, um, the first one is they'll just say herd instincts, that, that we as human humans, we have herd instincts, herd instincts, excuse me, to protect each other, to be good to each other. It's funny how they use good in, in their argument. Um, which isn't defined without moral law, but um, and the one thing that I'll say to that, uh, and uh, C.S. Lewis put this a great way in his book *Mere Christianity*: If you're walking on uh, the street one day or whatever, and you hear a scream or a yell for help, you have two instincts. Your first instinct is probably to run away and to protect yourself, and your second instinct is to run and help to run towards the danger. Now, in your heart or in your decision-making complex <laughs> or whatever, whether it's your heart or your mind, whatever, you generally are going to think that you ought to go help, that it is the right thing to do. The right thing to do is to run towards danger and go help. But then why do people run away? Well, they can obviously reject the thing that they think is right. Now, what, what atheists and scientists will say, well, oh, it's just it's just a herd instinct, right? But the decision between your two instincts to run towards or to run away cannot in itself be an instinct. Instincts can't decide on instincts. So there has to be something outside your instincts that makes you think that the right thing to do is to run towards the danger. And that's what we call moral law, this thing that God has written on our hearts that really signifies for us what is good, what is bad, what is right, what is wrong, what decision is right, what decision is wrong, um, and, and ways that we should act. And then the second thing that, uh, the second kind of argument that people would bring up is, is convenience, right? This, this idea of convenience, that we really just do what's convenient for us. And sort of the refute to this is if you go on a bus, like a public bus, and the best seat on the bus is in the back corner or whatever seat that you think is the best seat. And when you get on the bus, there's somebody sitting in that seat. Well, that's an inconvenience to you, right? But you're not going to be upset about it because that person got there first. Now, what if you go on the bus and your seat is open? Well, that's awesome. That's convenient for you. So you sit down in your seat. Now, let's say that your bag that you put down, you hit a pothole and your bag bumps away from you. And you have to get out of your seat to go grab it. And in that moment, someone takes your seat. Now, at this point, you're going to be very, very angry, right? But when you look at the actual convenience done to you or inconvenience done to you, it's the same either way. It's still an inconvenience to you. But one of them, you're very upset because someone took your seat. And that's not what they should do, right? That's not the way that they're supposed to act. But the level of inconvenience to you is the same. Your seat is taken, whether it was taken before you got there or whether it was stolen from you. So we often hold other people to these standards that we hold by the moral law. So it ha it, it's interesting that we hold other people to those standards, but then when we talk about it ourselves, sometimes we ignore it. It's just... The convenience argument is, is a bit difficult to kind of put into words, and I don't fully understand it myself. But those those two arguments are generally the two arguments that people bring up against moral law, is that it's, it's a herd instincts 
or we just generally do whatever is convenient to us. But if you look at certain cases and sort of like the example I just brought up, um, convenience is, is often subjective. It's, it's not something that we, we based our actions upon. And it definitely is not the deciding factor between whether you go help or you run away if someone screams and, and there's a dangerous situation. Um, so this moral law, we, we have it in ourselves. And it is this idea that we know the difference between right and wrong, that there are things that we hold to be wrong, things we hold to be right. We know that murder is wrong. Why? Because the law said it is wrong or because we have this nature in us that makes us not want to kill other human beings, that says we shouldn't, that is the wrong thing to do. And that's kind of what we're taking as the moral law. Now, another argument that people often bring up against universal moral laws from God is the idea that no laws, no moral laws are universal. The idea that they're cultural and they're dependent on which culture you're in. So every culture has set standards for what they believe to be right and what they believe to be wrong. And depending on which culture you're in, some things may be right here and some things may not be right in a different culture. And while this argument does hold some weight that that there are definitely moral um, things that are more acceptable in certain cultures than in other cultures, uh, it does not hold that just because you're in a culture that's accepting of something means that it is automatically okay. Um, one example that I would bring up of this that's often cited is the Holocaust. Uh, the Holocaust, if we were going based off of our primal instincts, like Jonathan was saying, the, the herd mentality that that say that our, our base motivation was to ensure our survival as humans. If this was our, our only motivation to ensure our survival, then what they were doing in the Holocaust could be considered moral because they they were taking the people that they saw within society that appeared to be weak and they were eliminating them from society and so if our if our only motivation was survival as a species then it makes sense to get rid of the weaker members of the species in favor of the stronger members that way the stronger members can carry on the species but of course we know that what they were doing in the holocaust exterminating 5 million plus jews by the end of the world the uh by the end of world war 2 was completely wrong. Um, the Nuremberg trials, we proved this. We showed that what they were doing was horrendous, was completely wrong. There's no circumstances under which it's okay. But in that society, which Germany was considered one of the, the leading societies of the day, one of the smartest, most well-educated, most technologically advanced societies of the 1930s and 1940s. So this is one of the leading societies in the world. And according to their, their standards uh, and their culture, many people in the country agreed that it was in their best interest to get rid of the Jewish population. And that was their cultural standard. But we all know that that is wrong. Everybody in their heart knows that what happened during the Holocaust, there's no, no excuse for it. There's no way to justify it. There's no way to argue your way, to argue your way around it and to say that what they did was right. We all know that the extermination of Jews in the Holocaust was wrong. But why is it that we know that? If, if morals are culturally defined and in their culture, many people agreed that that was the best thing to do, then who are we to say that what they did was wrong? Now, we know that morals are universal because of this, because we can look at what they did in their culture and say that, that even though many people in that culture decided that that was the right thing to do, that was still wrong because of universal morals, because killing innocent people is just wrong in and of itself. And without God or without a universal lawgiver, there's no way, There's you don't have anything to base your argument that that was wrong onto. And so we know that we know that there's a universal law written on our hearts. But if it's universal, then there has to be some standard outside of humans, some objective standard that's greater than ourselves from which that law comes from, or from which that law comes, from which we get that instinct from which we understand what is good, what is bad, what is right, what is wrong. And this source has to be greater than humans. It has to be outside of us. And anything that is giving us moral laws that is outside of us is God. God is greater than us. God gives us our moral laws. He's defined for us what is good, what is bad. And it's 
it's the only explanation for universal moral truths. So let's move on to our next, um, our next point in terms of um, apologetics, which let's go to the very beginning of the Bible. So in Genesis 1.1, it says, In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. So right from the start of Scripture, we know how the world came to be. We know that God created this world. He created everything that, well, everything. Um, and that's pretty spectacular. Whereas many people don't even know, you know, what, how this world came to be. It's, they just have ideas of what it could be. They have, um, you know, sort of this excuse for how this world came to be, where us as Christians, we know based off scripture, how this world came to be. Um, I'm going to read Hebrews uh, chapter 3, verse 4, which says, For every house is built by someone, but God is the builder of everything. So, you know, that kind of goes alongside Genesis 1-1, just kind of going again saying, hey, God created everything. He created this world. He created this universe. He created you and me. Like, have you ever thought about how we as humans, like, how complex we are like how in the world did even us come to be but not only that but all these other creatures on this earth and even you know the sun where it is and the moon where it is like everything has to be put into a specific spot so that we we can survive um and so many people ask, like, how, how did we come into being? Um, and we didn't just appear here. Like, so we've talked about battalion before. Um, but before battalion, we had this thing called stockade. And so I believe Christian, when he moved, he was too old for it. Um, he yeah, came I never did battalion. stockade. Yeah. So for me and Jonathan, though, we did um, stockade and we did this thing called shape and race, which is basically, you know, you grab a block of wood and you turn it into a car. And by the end of the year, you have this race at the end. But that piece of wood doesn't just end up a car just by saying abracadabra. Like a lot of work goes into it. You have to design it. You have to cut it. You have to sand it. You have to put wheels on it. You have to prime it and paint paint it. And so all these different things go into making this car it doesn't you know just appear out of thin air and the same could be said for this world where god designed this world specifically um for us to reflect him and so we know that we have god who created the world so like max is saying whenever we see things that are created or built. We always assume a builder or a creator. When you see someone's beautiful garden with flowers and bushes and trees, you always assume that there was a gardener or a landscaper. Whenever you see an awesome building and awesome architecture, you assume that there was an architect. Whenever you see a painting or a canvas that was beautifully crafted, you always assume that there was an artist. And this is the same thing that we take with the moral law. That if we have a moral law, we have to take that there's a moral law giver. That someone set in place this objective standard uh, of a way that we should live, that we we, sh we should act the way that we should perceive right and wrong. And we take that moral law giver to be God. Now, obviously, people will say, well, if there's a moral law giver, then there's God. Okay, that makes sense. But if there's God, then it means there has to be a God giver. Like, where did God start? Who started God? And you have to remember that God is outside of time. He created time. God is a timeless, spaceless um, being that's, a, that's eternal. So we exist as humans inside of time. And this time uh, causes us to, well, we're not going to get into the, too much of the details behind it, but, but uh, essentially death and everything that we see 
and starting and ending all has to do with this in the confines of time. And if God exists outside of time, that means he doesn't need a beginning or an end because time doesn't exist with him, that he exists outside of time. So he doesn't need a God giver. God doesn't need a start because there's no start or end with him. And I know it's kind of difficult to get your head around, but really, if, you, if there's no time, you have no concept of beginning or end. So right now, we're kind of at the point where we have figured out or sort of pointed to the fact that we have this moral law in us, that there's this objective way that we should act. Because of this objective standard, we know that somebody had to put that objective standard into place. And we take that person to be God based on the scriptures. And then we have creation. And we take that there is a creator based on scriptures that we take to be God. And this makes sense. And like we've been saying, this this creation, uh, the Bible tells us directly that creation is evidence of God's existence. And, and creation is evidence of the creator. Like Jonathan was mentioning, that's one of my favorite things to point out, that when you see a building, you know that there is a builder because of the building. You don't have to see a builder. You don't have to know the builder's name. You just know that there was a builder at some point because you see the building. The building is evidence of the builder. In the same way, the creation is evidence of the creator. And in in one of my favorite verses uh, in the Bible that mentions this is, actually, it's a, it's a passage in Romans chapter 1, um, starting in verse 18 and continuing. It says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. And so the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against us, against our ungodliness. But it continues, for what can be known about God is plain to them because God has, God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. So this passage is telling us that God in his eternal nature, his eternal divine attributes are all clear to us in the creation. In God's creation, the things that he's created, the fruits of his creation, it is clear to us that God exists. Not only that, that his divine attributes like love and um, eternality are clear and, and, and evident through his creation. And now, We've talked a lot about what the Bible says, but what about answering objections to the creation argument? People say, well, the earth, the earth happened on its own. Like the earth is, or the, the universe is billions of years old. Um, and it, you know, the big bang, uh, the big bang occurred and spread billions upon billions upon billions. We can't even count the numbers of galaxies and stars and planets that are around the universe. And so it's only scientifically possible, or it's, it's, it's scientifically likely, almost scientifically guaranteed and mathematically guaranteed that of all of these innumerable planets that exist, at least one of them was ready for life. And that life began to exist on the planet, and then it slowly evolved over billions of years to become the intelligent life that we have today. And this... This argument, while it sounds like it makes sense, because if there's if there's almost an infinite number of planets out there, then at least one of them had to have life, and and Earth seems to be the one that has the perfect, you know, um, distance from the sun, and the perfect angle, and the perfect rotation speed, and the perfect um, environment, and atmosphere, and gravity level, and all these things that had to be perfectly fine tuned for for human life. Of all the planets in the in the universe, of course, it makes sense that at least one of them would have the 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 conditions for life. And so they use that argument to say that it makes perfect sense that this planet supports life and there had there didn't have to be an intelligent creator behind it. But some mathematicians and scientists who have been looking into this have said that the, the probability not only of the Earth becoming perfectly suited for life uh, and all the conditions becoming perfectly suited for life, but also our DNA and our evolution, just <clears throat> all the great things that exists within the human body, the complex brain, the complex eyeballs, the, the DNA that has millions upon millions of strands of information in each little strand of DNA. The probability that all of this would happen is about the same as the probability of a bunch of monkeys walking on keyboards, typing out a perfect Shakespeare play. And 
this while this sounds like like it's crazy, uh, they worked out the numbers and the two the odds of both of those happening are about the same. And now you might be thinking, okay, well, Christian, how likely is it that monkeys would type Shakespeare? And it's funny that you ask because scientists have actually tested out this theory. It's called the infinite monkey theorem. And the, the, the theorem is that an infinite number of monkeys are typing on keyboards all at once. And scientists have run computer programs to try to see how long it would take monkeys randomly typing on keyboards, an infinite number of monkeys randomly typing on keyboards, how long it would take them to type out a perfect Shakespeare play. And they've, they've done this experiment over and over and over again. And even if there were as many monkeys as there are particles in the observable, observable universe, so every particle that we can observe represents one monkey, and every monkey types a thousand keystrokes per second. And this entire experiment goes on for 100 times the life of the universe. So that's one monkey for every particle in the observable universe. Each one of those monkeys is typing a thousand keystrokes per second. And this experiment's going on for 100 times the life of the known universe. The probability that these monkeys would replicate even something as simple as a short book is nearly zero. Scientists have run computer tests on this. They've run programs to, to, you know, random number and letter generators to see how accurate it gets. And even if you extend the time, the time period to 42 billion, billion, billion years of an infinite number of monkeys typing on keyboards, the closest that scientists have gotten in their computer um, simulations is 19 letters being the same as a book that exists right now. And so if all they can do is get 19 letters of one book, then the odds of them reproducing a Shakespeare novel would be infinite and uh, like infinitely more unlikely. Um, it's, it's funny because uh, short side story, the there was actually an experiment done uh, the universe, by the University of Plymouth Media Lab and Arts that they used a 2,000 pound grant from the Arts Council to study this and to see, like, they actually put literal monkeys on keyboards to see what they would type up. And they gave them five days. And in those five days, the monkeys produced five pages of type. And mostly they just peed and pooped on the, the keyboard itself. But in those five pages that they typed, they did not even write one single word. And that's counting A, that's counting an, that's counting I as words. The monkeys did not type one single word in those five days. So it's, it's just, it's funny that they actually tried that out, the infinite monkey theorem uh, on the keyboards to see what they would type out. But back to the point, the odds of the universe, you know, developing exactly as it did um, perfectly for life and then us evolving into the intelligent life forms that we are, are so close to zero that it's not even worth considering. Like the scientists have run the tests. It's, it's all happened that, that, it's so unlikely that all of this came into being without any intelligent mind behind it. And it's, it's crazy to me. Like I said earlier, whenever we see anything that's intelligently designed, a building, a painting, a drawing, a, whatever it is, we assume a designer behind it. But when we look at the most complex thing in our lives, the earth and ourselves, we just assume that it all happened by random chance. And when I'm on the streets, I often, I talk to somebody and I say, okay, look at this building behind you. If I just told you that Yesterday, a tornado blew through a construction site and this building just appeared. There is no design behind it. There is no architect, no, you know, um, foremans, no contractors, nothing. It just appeared. It perfectly working plumbing, the lights and the electricity. It's all perfect. Um, it just appeared because a tornado went through the construction site. Then the person is always like, that's ridiculous. Why would I believe that? But believing that is so much more reasonable than believing that our universe just came into existence by random chance. And so when you look at the moral argument combined with this argument of a creator, um, creation being evidence of the creator, it's the, the evidence is so strongly pointing in the design of an intelligent creator God that I honestly don't know how anybody could, could see this evidence and come to the conclusion that there is no intelligent designer, there's no intelligent creator God behind all of it. But like Christian said at the beginning of the podcast, ultimately, all of this comes down to whether or not you're going to have faith 
in God. Um, if you just wait and expect God to just show up right in front of you as a physical being, chances are it's not going to happen. It's a step of faith that you are going to have to wrestle with whether or not you're going to believe that there's a God who created us and who loves us so much that even while we were sinning against him, he still loved us and sent his son to die for us. It's an amazing thing to think about, you know, how we are so complex and just to imagine a God who created us this way, like who cares so much about us to design us in this way that we can interact with one another. We can show each other um, love. And, you know, even in the beginning, when God created man, he said, let's create man in our own image. And that image of, you know, qualities of God that we get to bear, such as love and justice um, and creativity and all these amazing things that God has allowed us to experience. But ultimately, it comes down to a decision of faith. You're going to have to decide sooner or later what you believe in terms of a God. And it's it's definitely a line that Max said is a lot of people just don't want to, they don't want to believe that there's a God. They just don't want to. And um, this is something, a question that uh, that Frank Turk, who is a pretty famous apologist, um, one question that he always asks people is, if even if we could prove to you that there was a God, would you believe it? That if God existed, if God was true, if Christianity was true, would you believe it? Even if you knew without a shadow of doubt that 100% Christianity was true, that God exists, that Jesus came and died on the cross and rose again, and that your sins are covered if you put your trust and faith in him, if you knew all of that was 100% true, would you still believe it? And some people even say no. They just want to ignore uh, the truth, even if they knew it, it existed. And actually in Romans 1, we're actually told that everyone knows God exists. The creation even screams the existence of God. But people suppress that within themselves. So it's... This is such a hard thing when you're sharing the gospel with people or, or you're trying to reason with them using apologetics or whatever. So sometimes you you get the feeling that they just don't want to believe, that their heart is not open to the gospel. So that even if you could shove the truth down their throat, they wouldn't believe. And so we have to be really careful about that as Christians, that we have to always make sure that we're um, actually the, that first uh, first Peter 3.15 verse that I brought up like almost in the very beginning of the podcast. The first part of the verse is always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you, or always be prepared to give a reason for the hope that is within you. But the second part of the verse is, but always do this with gentleness and respect. But we have to make sure that we're always uh, humble in the way that we share the gospel, that we don't try, that we don't become prideful in the fact that we think we know the answer to all the questions and arguments against Christianity. And we can we can tear down people's arguments and we can tear down their worldviews and, and we can crush their spirits and then shove the truth of the gospel down. That That's just not what we're supposed to do. Um, and we want to make sure that we're not sharing this information with you guys so that you can you can go out and, and crush some arguments of atheists. Because I know it's it is fun beating, you know, winning arguments and, and winning theological conversations. But uh, we got to make sure that we're always keeping in mind the reason of why we're learning any of this is so that we can honestly be better prepared to share the gospel with people, that we can share the light of Jesus Christ with other people. Um, and this it's such a hard thing with Christianity because people do signify with Christianity that you're supposed to live in a certain way um, outside of the moral law. Like, like Christians have to live in a certain way. They have to abstain from certain things that they can't have sex before marriage, that they can't do these certain things, which is true. Like there are these things that we hold as Christians that are um, valuable that God has told us that we should not be doing these things. Um, and people just, they, they don't want to change their lives like that. They don't want to give up certain things in their lives that they think are good for them or that they enjoy doing. Um, and that's, you know, that's what's interesting about the moral laws. Like, sure, we have this moral law that tells us what is right or wrong, that we have this, you know, this feeling in ourselves of, of what is the right thing, what is the wrong thing. But you have the ability to ignore that. You can choose to ignore what's right or wrong any day. Uh, and that's really where free choice comes in. And, and free choice doesn't go away when you're 
um, choosing to accept Christ or choosing to reject Christ. Um, so it's sometimes it's not even about can you prove the existence of God. It's the fact that do you just want to accept it or do you just want to reject it? And we have to we have to be respectful of that as Christians because it's it's not you can't save everybody, and it's not our jobs to reason people to Christ. It isn't our job to win arguments so that people believe in Jesus. It's our arguments. It's our job to uh, share the gospel in in a gentle and respectful way. And it's God's job to work on that person's heart, to use the Holy Spirit to work on that person's heart, to open the eyes of that person. Um, and it's really, it's never a work of ourselves, but of the work of the Spirit. So we just got to make sure that we we stay humble um, when we're sharing the gospel and that we're never trying to win arguments for argument's sake, that we're always trying to point people to Jesus Christ. That's such a critical point that all of this that we're, we're, we're going to be talking about in this apologetic series uh, the arguments for God, the arguments for the resurrection, um, the different aspects of the faith and how we can look at them uh, objectively and see why we think what, the way that we think and give reasons for what we believe. It's, it's all so we can glorify God and glorify Jesus more in our lives. That as we share the gospel, that we have more answers for the questions that people ask us. Like Jonathan said, 1 Peter 3.15, that we have an answer for the hope that lies within us, that when people ask us about Jesus Christ and about our faith, that we have answers for their questions, even if they have questions that are not easy to answer, even if they have questions like, why does God exist? Or how do I know that Jesus rose from the dead? And so we're we're here to answer the big questions during this, this series. And if you guys have any apologetics questions that have been weighing on your mind or questions that you've been asked by people that you're not quite sure the answer to, or really anything that you just want to know the answer to, any questions about the existence of God or, or the truth of the Bible or the age of the universe, like whatever it is, please ask us those questions. We'd love to answer this. We this is a conversation. This is not um, this is not us telling you all the things that we know and just leaving it at that. We want to we want to have a conversation with you. If you guys have questions about any of the answers that we give in these these episodes please reach out to us and ask us those questions. If you have any apologetics questions that you'd like to hear answered in future episodes, please reach out to us. We want to hear from you guys. We want to make this an interactive uh, community. We want to make this an interactive uh, um, adventure with you guys, taking you guys uh, alongside our, our ourselves in this journey. And the emails that we've gotten so far, the encouragements that we've gotten have been so great. Uh, we thank you so much for those. We we respond to each and every email and, and a correspondence that we get. Um, if you want to reach out to us with a question or a comment or an encouragement or a, a criticism or whatever it is, we'd love to hear from you. Uh, you can reach out to us on our emails. Uh, you can reach out to a particular host at Christian, Max, or Jonathan at livingvictorypodcast.com. You can visit our website, livingvictorypodcast.com. Uh, it has our our about, like our uh, bio information. It has a description of what the show is, what our purpose behind the show is. It has resources, good biblical resources that you can use to go find biblical online places. Uh, there's a, a radio station. There's a YouTube channel. There's great things for Christians to, to build up their faith and just really, really uh, dive deeper into Christian resources online. You can email our general email uh, to get all three of us at questions at livingvictorypodcast.com. You can reach out to us on Instagram or Facebook at livingvictorypodcast.com. Uh, that's our name on both Instagram and Facebook. We want to hear from you guys. We want to make this a conversation. If you have any apologetics questions or anything, please let us know. Please reach out to us. Please, please ask us the questions so we can answer them on a future podcast. Uh, we, we want you guys to, to just listen to the show, but we don't want you to listen to the show for us. We want you to listen to the show for, for God's glory. We, and everything we do, we're aiming to glorify God through our effort, through our time, and we want to make sure that God stays the center of this show. And you guys can do us a huge favor by sharing the show and giving us a, just taking two minutes out of your day to give us a rating and review on iTunes or, or Spotify or wherever you listen to your podcasts. If you take, if you take just two minutes to go on and leave us a rating and a review, that that's how we can grow up the charts. That's how we can get this message, message of the gospel out there and how we can reach more hearts and minds for Christ. Uh, but also, like I said earlier, if you share the show, sharing the show with somebody who's close to you, uh, that's something that's really easy, really simple to do. And there's somebody out there that needs to hear this message. You know somebody in your life that needs to hear the gospel message, that needs to hear, uh, this is a great episode to share with with people in your life that 
don't necessarily think that there's a God, that don't understand why people would believe in a God. This is a great resource for you to share with them, uh, especially if you're not comfortable having that discussion yourself. You can point them to this podcast. Uh, they can listen to the arguments that we have. And then if they ask you any questions uh, because of that that you can't answer, please point them to us. Please, please point either them to our contact information or give their questions to us and we'll answer them for you on a future podcast or in an email. Um, we really want to do that. We want to be here. We want to help you guys come up with answers to these big questions, these big, big biblical questions. Um, and one of the things that I, I thought was really cool is that even in God's word, he has proofs. He, he, he offers proofs and evidences for himself. And one of the coolest ones is found in Acts chapter 17. In Acts chapter 17, at the very end of the chapter, well, almost the very end of the chapter, in verses 30 and 31, he talks about that God, um, this is the word of God. Uh, it's not, it was written by Luke the Apostle, but we know that it's the word of God. Um, Acts chapter 17, verses 30 and 31. Uh, it says that God has, essentially, I'm not going to, I'm not going to read it verse for verse, but I'm going to quote it or I'm going to paraphrase it. It says that, that God overlooks our our um, ignorance. We have ignorance and we we know God's law. Like we were talking about the moral argument earlier. We all know God's law. We all know what he has for us on our inside. Like what what's written on our heart, the law that's written on our heart. Um, and God overlooks that we've been ignorant about this for hundreds and hundreds and thousands of years as people. He has been commanding us to repent and he still commands us to repent. And there's going to be a day in the future when he's going to judge the world and in, in his righteousness. And he's given assurance to this. This is this is the end of verse 31. I'm going to read it straight here. Of this, he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. So it talks about how he's going to judge the world through Jesus. And he gave assurance of this by raising him from the dead. So God offers assurance for this thing by raising him from the dead. So it's not just up to us to find these answers, to find these proofs for God. But God, even in himself, offered proof that he's going to judge the world um, in righteousness by raising Jesus from the dead. And that's actually what we're going to look at next week. We're going to look at the resurrection. That's another thing that's hotly contested. Many people think Jesus did not raise from the dead. And so we're going to look at the evidence for Jesus raising from the dead. We're going to talk about that. We're going to discuss the the merits and the arguments against it. And we're really going to have a great time. I've, I've really enjoyed this first episode, and I really, really look forward to the rest of this apologetic series. So uh, thank you guys for listening so much. I hope that you stick with us through this apologetic series. I hope that you interact with us, that you give us your questions, that we can help help you come to find the answers of those things by God's grace. And I just, I thank you guys so much for being on this journey with us. I thank you. We could not do this show if it were not for you. So thank you so much for all that you do. And as always, love each other and shine your light.